<laughs> I love that. Take 30 bubble bath. So how often have you guys worked together? We've had a couple of projects over the years and, and it's, it's funny in our business that you bounce up against guys for what can be decades because the, the durations of the projects go on so long yeah. that it's like, okay, so, you know, Bob might have a, a series of three projects that come out at one time. Two of them are associated with a, another builder. So only one's like with me. And then, so that you try that then all of a sudden Bob gets picked up in a different environment for five more projects, you know, that are not local to where we work. So he's out for the next three years and then Bob has something else and I'm actually busy. So it, it's a very strange network, how it works among the architects and builders that there's times that you just, I mean, look, five or 10 years can slide by before you work together. Sure. Wait, wait, it's 4.05. And I think that is a great way to start the show. So this week it's episode 23, Super Houses with Robert Cardello known as Bob, the architect, and Scott Hobbs, known as Scott, the builder. And the qu first question right out of the gate was, have you guys worked together from Roberto? And the answer is, well, we've been, we've been working on and off together for at least the last 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's about when the first one was. And yet, when I looked at the 30 fabulous photos on Bob's site and the 30 fabulous photos on Scott's site. I was like, could you show me one that you designed and you built? And you said, well, there's, there's been three or four, but they're not on our website. So, <laughs> so I came up with uh, this one on the, that you saw on the promotional email. Uh, this is a Darien waterfront house was designed by Robert Cardello. And I really wanted to start with that because the theme for the show was supposed to be super houses. And I got a little bit of pushback from Scott and Robert. And they're like, we don't just build mega houses. This isn't about bigging, building big houses or designing big houses. We design really beautiful, smart, sustainable. They might be big, but that's not what we're all about. So. I picked this as an example, and I thought maybe, Bob, you could start by talking to us about why is this a super house and what is a super house, generally speaking. So go ahead. Um, thank you, and thanks for having me on, by the way. This is a real treat, especially on a rainy day. Um, so thanks, thanks very much. This, this particular house, that house was finished in 2007. So it's, it's actually not, not that new, but it's, um, it's a very nice house. It's a waterfront home that has some pretty, uh, pretty cool and special views and had a great client um, attached and, and all the other things that happen with waterfront projects. Um, I think it's pretty typical of, of, of the larger projects that we're seeing today and that it was you know, it has all the parts and pieces that most are coming coming in and asking for, which is, you know, some of the formal rooms might be leaving the program, but now they want, you know, home offices for him and her. They'd like a, a big kitchen family room where they can enjoy the family time, but it's also nice to have a, a separate den where they can go and relax. Um, and then there's, there's all kinds of plug and plays that go along with that. And 
you know, things that happen in the basement, like recreation spaces, exercise rooms, wine rooms, and, and um, you know, what happens on the upper floor? A lot of people want to finish that third floor space. And what does that become? And all the suites, um, you know, it, it's, it's most of the homes we're doing, you know, they want individual suites for not only the kids, but the guests. And in some cases, uh, people are even designing a master on both floors so that, you know, although they want to be upstairs with their young children now, that in the future, if this is the forever home, they like the optionality of having a, a bedroom suite on the main floor so they can go down there in the in, in their older years and stay in the house. Right. The I'm going to answer it differently, right? I'm going to ask you a question and I'll let you answer it, but now I want to answer it. When I look at this house, you know what I see? I see something incredibly complicated. I have, I have a wine, you know, I have a, an exercise room and I have a, a home office in my house, but I don't have a super house. I look here and you've got, you've got curves in the roof line. You've got towers. You've got massively oversized windows to take in the views. This is a, this is a massively complicated house to both design and build. And in my conversations with Scott, and this is my segue to Scott, when I say, what sets you apart? Why can't I just hire any old builder, any old architect to build me a house like this? And he says, John, do you have any idea how many subcontractors we have to coordinate? Do you understand that to build an $18 million house over 18 months, you have to really be quite organized at, at, at being able to spend efficiently and in an organized fashion, a million dollars a month. And you have to work with not only an architect, but a whole team of architects to build such a house um, who are, are, are coming up with hundreds of pages of design documents. So go ahead, Scott, tell me why, tell me what it's like to build houses like this. And I can pull up your your portfolio as well, if you want to talk about specific ones. Uh, go ahead and pull out anyone on the, pull up one on the top two or three or something. It's all fine. I mean, okay. I think what you see like in, in, in Bob's house and what you see in a, in a house like, well, this one actually is kind of a little bit overdone, but um, what you end up having is like, you know, just even like the type of, um, of shingles that you have on the roof. You know, you can see a wood roof and the wood roof can have very thin shingles or they can have thicker shingles. And so in a speculative house, you'll typically find the thinner shingles. They're going to wear out sooner. They're going to get, you know, they're, they're not going to look quite as nice. You miss the shadow lines. But the reality is that most buyers coming in won't notice that. But if you're going to live there, you actually will notice it. So then you move into um, like the windows. And the windows on like the house like that Bob had up there, you can have a $150,000 window package or you can have half a million dollar window package or a million. And there's different quality levels inside of that. And for, again, most of the time on a speculative basis, people will choose the less expensive because you're appealing to a mass market. Whereas when you get to the custom side, you know, I refer to like on windows that, you know, if we ask some um, clients, like, go ahead and take a look at this, this really expensive custom window. And the person goes over and feels it and say, oh, just feel the weight of it. Look at the joinery and see how all the little pieces come together. They ought to be going for the expensive window. If you ask somebody else and they look at the window and say, wow, it's really nice outside, they can get away with the less expensive window. They don't care about it as much. And so there's, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars difference 
that if you're building for an individual, it's worth putting in there if they value it. But if you're building on the speculative side, it's not worth doing it because the person's going to come out of New York City and say, you're more expensive per square foot and I get a better deal on something else. So that, that's, a, that's one of the differences on the custom side. I mean, I'd say one of the biggest issues on the custom side is the mechanical systems. So the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning. Um, on, the, on a speculative side, it's not unusual to get, say, on a house like what Bob presented, um, you know, that, that package may be $100,000 and you have four or five zones. On the custom side, it might be half a million and you end up with 13 or 14 zones with a whole bunch of radiant and you have variable speed air handlers where, you know, when they kick on, you don't get a poof of air on the back of your neck. Instead, it ramps up and it ramps down and it anticipates and it does a whole lot of other things. It just makes the whole space much more comfortable. So can we just start a little macro? Because when you are building, you know, it's the difference of saying, you know, I'm the sitting boy. So I consider it like, you know, you have a, you have a developer who builds 12 story buildings, 12 story buildings, and all of a sudden, you know, at some point they're successful and they want to make that leap to a super tall. What is the difference in approach just from the beginning? I mean, you have a swath of land, you're talking about, I mean, maybe Bob is more along the lines of my first question is like, you know, you have to orient the house with the sun and then you got to figure out, you know, how much land you have, how you lay everything out, what all the parts and pieces are, which you mentioned. But what is the difference, you know, where does someone on the building side and on the architectural side, when you make that leap, where are people making the mistakes? Like what is different? Here, I'll give Bob a quick lead in. The number one most important thing is to buy good design because ultimately you're gonna spend a lot of money. And the, the difference between spending that money on good design that creates something special versus spending it on with poor design that creates something mediocre, that overall cost is not tremendously different, but the difference in the end result is huge. So, I mean, it all starts with good design. So I'll throw you that one, Bob. Thank you, Scott. Um... Yeah, I mean, obviously it's self-serving, but I have to agree. Like it's, it's a million little things when it comes to these projects. John, you pointed to that house we did. You know, the, the round tower is there because the, the seawall wraps that corner of the house and this, this has this amazing panoramic view of, of, of Long Island Sound at that particular spot. Uh, Darien, Connecticut has very restrictive height, height requirements. So I had to do an eyebrow dormer on that upper floor in order to get that roof line where I wanted it. Um, and then, you, you know, you blend in other things like what the client's program might be. Uh, we needed multiple variances. We had to go to planning and zoning. So it was a technical project from a town standpoint. When you're doing waterfront, Scott, I'll tell you, like rain comes in horizontally. Like how do you design a house to take rain that comes in horizontally you know what I mean like it, it's a very it's very different from a house that you're building out in the woods so you know we have a very specific way of designing and documenting homes like this on the water as a firm that does a lot of waterfront um, so it, it's really about time right so for for spec speculative projects like Scott Scott was mentioning I, I think the simplest way of putting it is those type of projects, usually the fastest you can get it done and the most house you could supply for the least amount of investment on your part is, is where the equation comes out because that it's about math. Spec houses are about, are kind of a math problem. You know what I mean? It's, and it's, it's not always about design. Some rare cases you do run into people that are focused on design, but 
it's a very different thing than what we're doing. I'm, I'm always preaching to my clients, like, let's just take our time through this process, like follow my lead, but it's, it, it, it does pay huge dividends. If we just slow down, let's talk about our house. Let's spend time looking at things that really appeal to you. Let me look at how you live now. Let's talk about how this new house could be special for you and your family, how it might be special for you and your family 10, 15, 20 years from now. And, um, and those kind of dialogues lead into sort of a bubble diagram of program and you weave in the site options and, and, then, and then it becomes a little bit like sculpture, if that makes sense in the beginning. Well, this looks very sculptural to me. The, the, the photo on the screen right now, I mean, I see an, a very complicated dome ceiling within the dome roof. Yeah. I see a domed uh, mantle, fireplace, uh, out of uh, what's limestone, I guess a limestone curved fireplace to match the curved ceiling. I see that you've thought through the recessed lighting in the ceiling. And then I, I'm struck by the fact that the most important thing in the room is the view. And so you decided to have a, not only a curved wall, but it's almost entirely glass, which I remember from my early days in, in, in uh, studying about architecture, um, you guys have to worry about how the whole house is going to get supported. So while clients like me want more glass and more view, you have to figure out how to do all this curves and have it stand up. And maybe that's Scott's problem, but I suspect it's, it's both of your problems. Well, we share that. <laughs> and as you just said, this is right on the water and it's going to get sideways rain and hurricane winds. And so not only do you have to have a beautiful curved roof and beautiful curved windows, and lots of windows, but you have to have it hurricane proof, right? Absolutely, and then privacy too, because there's boats going by here. So, you know, how are these guys walking around that bedroom at night? So, you know, you push a button and a drapery system comes out and around the room and all that gets coordinated in that you don't see in that photograph, you know what I mean? I wanna talk about this uh, staircase, right? Staircases in my house was an afterthought when I thought about building my house, I was like, oh, why don't we stack up all the staircases so we take up less space? But here you decided to make the staircase a work of art. Now, what went into that? Because I'm sure at some point they have to say, well, that's really beautiful, Bob, but how much is that going to cost me? Right? I mean, there's got to be that conversation when somebody says, yeah, I want, I want a, you know, I want a chateau quality staircase. <laughs> yeah, Scott will agree with me. There's, there's no client. Uh, in, in, on our client list ever that that budget ha budget hasn't been a discussion point. It, it's always always a discussion point. Sometimes it's this much, and sometimes it's this much, but it's always a discussion point. But I, yeah, you're right. I like staircases. For me, are an opportunity to you know they are like having a little sculptural element in the plan. Um, you know, a lot of our floor plans for homes, we unlike the Center Hall Colonial, which I know is still very popular in New England and other places. You know, if you take that center stair and you move it to the outside wall, guess what? Now it opens up all these floor plan opportunities to create these wonderful open plans that everyone's kind of looking for the, these days. And um, and you could take that stair that you've moved out of the center of the house and celebrate it a little bit, you know? Yeah. And staircase, if you go back to the staircase for one second, John, okay. there's a, staircases are driven by math. 
and the inspectors that th this this railing has to be at a very specific height everywhere along the railing. Um, and it's, since inspectors can actually pull out a measuring tape and measure it, they can fail it for a quarter inch off. And so meanwhile, you have to go ahead and take a look as to, you know, as you're going through a radius, you look at how a different number of balusters per tread, the radius changes it, the inside radius is different from the outside radius. You have the, um, the feature pieces in the middle of the balusters that change height and they have to have something that, that um, connect them to the rest of the piece. And then even when you look at the, at the base of the balusters, you see how there's that, that shoe on top of it. And that shoe is a really actually important part. And you know, I want to get those to line up in a way that all makes sense. Some people have now taken to eliminating the shoe, which means that everything underneath that needs to be dead nuts perfect. So it's like more is more, but least is most. So the fact that you have this, this wonderful decorative shoe adds expense to an overall baluster, but matter of fact, if you get rid of it, now you've made the level of difficulty something that, that just multiplied by two. And so you get a giant jump under the pricing. And these are all the things that you have to work through. And until you do it and you actually sit there and you realize that the hole that you drilled, you can't get the piece in and twist it up top without having a shoe or something, you, you just don't understand that. And those are the things that, that architects and designers keep pushing the envelope with builders and you keep um, evolving the designs over time to create stuff that's special and different. So you answered the question of, is it complicated? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. And, and, and inevitably what happens is, as soon as Bob will hand us a set of drawings that's impossible, we'll somehow figure it out. And then that's when the architect says, well, can you do just a little more? He's like, no, no, we already hit impossible. But that's how you keep evolving. And that's how the stuff keeps changing. And that's why with the custom side, again, you can end up with some stuff you just don't see anywhere else. And, and you really hope to, I mean, that, you know, our, our world is pretty linear in that we, we conceive this thing and then we develop that, that idea. And then Scott comes in maybe early on and says, I think it costs this much. And then we keep going and I draw in detail that, that building um, and then Scott puts a real number to it and then we go build it in that order. Um, and, and it's pretty, it's pretty simple, frankly, the process itself isn't, isn't that hard. Roberto, you asked earlier, I think you asked that, you know, what, 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 what mistakes do people make? I think the mistakes that I see happening are people that try to cut the corners. You know what I mean? That, that try to jump ahead. They try to do a, a six month project in three months or they, they rush things. And then that's when mistakes happen. You know what I mean? Um, that stair we were just looking at, like the code lets you do eight and a quarter inch risers. That's not a very comfortable stair to walk up and down. So you could issue it to New England Stair Company and they could do their shop drawings and give you eight and a quarter inch risers. Or the client will let me draw in detail that stair with my seven and a quarter inch risers and a nice wide tread that makes it a very comfortable stair to walk up and down. And, and when, when we have that time to develop the details, that's what leads, in my opinion, to a really successful project. So let me ask you something about that house. Just because you said it was built 2007, eight, is that what you said? Correct. If you had to build that exact same house today, what would be different about your approach? Just in what has advanced, what would be different about that house today? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, all the realtors on the call could answer that question like immediately. 
That is so 2007, that choice you made over there. Oh, that, that's definitely 2007 over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I think it's a really good question, Roberto. I, 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 think, um, I think for me, uh, I think the architecture, you know, in my infancy, I did a lot of shingle style waterfront stuff. And, and as I've grown in the industry and with my practice, um, I think the less is more approach is definitely coming coming into focus for me more, meaning the buildings that we're developing. And I don't know if you, if you go into our portfolio and you look on illustrations um, on some of the projects that are e either recently constructed or are coming off our drafting board, they're just a little cleaner. They're a little bit more modern. They're less fussy. And I, I do think that has a broader, the client base, and I assume all the brokers on this call would agree. Like, I think that's clients are really responding to that. Yeah, let me ask you about construction costs. The whole page is clean. Can I ask you about construction costs? Yes. Um, so Michael Stern, who works here and, and builds those super talls, he works for JDS. And he has said that in the last 10 years, construction costs have gone up something like 35%. And primarily a lot of that being really labor costs and the cost of uh, just the insurance, the taxes, carrying the loans, et cetera. And he also said that the riskiest part of any of these endeavors is the scheduling because that the, the, the longer the schedule goes, the more that that's the biggest risk factor to any of these buildings. Does that extrapolate out into your world as well? I think there's two things that have happened. I mean, one, I mean, prices have actually been relatively stable in our custom market on an apples to apples basis for like the last eight or nine years up until this past year. Um, you know, there's been a tweak up, things have continued going up, but what clients want has become much more expensive. So it, it's the style, the design, the, the finishes, you know, what people actually want in their house has driven a lot of the cost increase. Um, things have gotten more complicated that, you know, I look back and I'm sure Bob has the same thing. I mean, look back to like the early nineties and it's like, well, that was pretty simple. I mean, I mean, the stuff that you used to think was really sophisticated, very basic. And all of a sudden you get into the, you know, the early aughts, but you know, the stuff we're building today is pretty darn complicated. There's a lot that goes into it. And then the materials that people want are way more expensive, just way more expensive. And I mean, you know, like an old recessed light or something was like 15 bucks. They can now with some of the most modern, awesome LED lights, it can be 1500 for one of them. Now you can do them for a hundred, but you, know, you aren't gonna be putting in the old cans anymore that, that we used to do. And the same for tiles and marbles and, and even like the finishes that people want, want on the, the decorative finishes on the walls and the floors can add you know, 100, 200, 300 bucks a square foot. I mean, it, it's just, it's unbelievable. Not, not individually, but cumulatively. How about labor? Labor's tweaked up over the last 10 years. And right now it's the feel is it is gonna go through the roof. Um, it's just, there's so much activity right now and it doesn't help that the government's actually paying a lot of people to stay home. Um, but there's so much activity, labor costs are definitely gonna have to go up. Wow. And Bob, any, any observations from your side or? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I, I think for me, Actually, you know, 2000 ish to 2009 was was pretty exciting. Frankly, it was 
a lot of activity, not as much as maybe today, but it was a great time to be um, in the construction design industry. And then, and then since 2009, I kind of been, I kind of inched my way back to sort of leveled out from at like 2011, 12. And it's been, you know, it's been pretty consistent, I would say up until this, this COVID issue. And, and, and I, when it first hit, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, like another one of these things. But, um, but in the end, it turned out to be a pretty amazing thing for our industry. Um, and, and, and now it's, it's just a question of what happens, right? Cause it's, you know, I'm sure every broker on this call will talk about just the, you know, the feeding frenzy that's going on out there. It's just, it's, 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 it's indescribable. Um, and the, the, the demands, you know, houses, houses, sanctuary, and people, people want to do things at home. They used to go out to do, you know, they want to groom their own dog at their house. They want to have a separate room for their Amazon packages. They want to, you know, all this stuff is like, you know, their definition of home is just completely different now. And people are willing to invest in that, but it just means the market's kind of, it's in, it's in, it's in the middle of its adjustment. I don't think Scott or I can really, really uh, talk about it, you know, right now, because we don't know. I mean, we don't know where this is going to go. Did you really just say that some of your clients want a separate room just for their Amazon packages? Yes, it's, it's, I mean, listen, we all get them, but it's, I guess it would be nice to have one room. Society, I mean, really, uh, you're scaring me. (laughs) As a realtor, I've seen on the plans bonus room, but I have not yet ever seen special room for the Amazon packages. Oh, yeah. I have heard of the Costco closet. Yeah, Costco closet, the dog grooming room, the, uh, you know. Gift wrapping room. Yeah. Gift wrapping room. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All right. This is the top of the hour. I want to put, this is when we play a little bit of a game. Okay. Bob has no idea where this is going, but this is the word association game. We tried it last week for the first time. I say a word and then you say the first word that comes out of your, out of your mind. And we can alternate between Scott and uh, Bob, right? So I'm just going to say a word. And there's no wrong answer. You just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. We'll come up with something. We'll start with something easy. Lead certified, Bob. Lead certified. What do you think of? Money. Money. Okay. All right. I, I think that could be an answer for like everything. <laughs> Can I be honest? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. We'll go. Now we'll go. We'll come back to that. Scott. The, the, the word is smart home. Very variable. Very variable. Okay. Bob, the word is modern farmhouse. What do you oh. think? <laughs> You're not oh. supposed to wince. Overused. Overused. Okay. So on its way out, maybe. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Scott Hobbs, waterfront. When you think of waterfront, do you get scared? Right place. Right place. All right. All right. I want, Bob, I want a hero. A hero. A hero of mine? 
If, if that's what you're thinking, yeah. Oh, um, you're an architect. I you gotta I, have heroes. I I am, but I don't I don't know if my heroes would be associated with architecture. Frankly, I'm also a huge fly fisherman, so you know I have like heroes there too. So I. I don't know if I, I could nail down a, if it's someone specific to architecture, you're saying? There's no wrong answer. I would right. love to hear a fly fishing hero. Scott Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call punting. Okay. <laughs> Scott Hobbs, interior decorators. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely? No, no, come on. That's punting. We're not, we're not punting two in a row. Come a different on, perspective. Interior decorators, because I know you got to work with them too. A different perspective. A different perspective. Okay. Bob, top architecture school. Oh man, I'm old. I, you know, a good school when I was there was one way, and it's different now. Um, I don't know. Columbia. The kids coming out of Columbia have a certain way of writing stuff, so they were considered great. I'd say Columbia. Okay, okay. That's, that's not a bad choice. Uh, Scott Hobbs, when you think of Greenwich, what do you think of? Home base. Home base? That's where, why? Most of your work is in Greenwich? Do about half our work in Greenwich. Okay. Um, Bob, the word traditional, traditional. I want traditional. What are you thinking? Uh, authentic. Traditional is authentic. In my in, in my opinion, in most cases, yeah. All right. All right. I would hope so. Still a fan of traditional and authentic. It sounds like. Absolutely. Okay. Scott Hobbs, the Inn at Pound Ridge. Awesome. Awesome. Not just because you built it. I, I was thinking under the food, but yes, the ambiance is awesome too. Okay, you built that when? How long ago? Uh, it would have been almost a decade ago. I mean, it, it would, so yeah, I mean, almost 10 years ago. Okay. So everybody can experience part of the Hobbs magic. Just head on over to the end at Pound Ridge. That's it. Okay. Bob, Sunday morning space. Sunday morning, screen porch. Screen porch. We still make screen porches. Absolutely. Only on now the waterfront or everywhere? I th and now more than ever, people, you know, I know Wes Stout's on this call. Like, everyone wants to live outside these days. Do people ask for the banging door? The banging door? <laughs> I think it just, it may take a couple years, but it happens. You got to pay extra for that, Roberto. Figured <laughs> <laughs> right. as much. Friday night space, Scott Hobbs. Do you build any Friday night space? Uh, you've got the man cave. The man cave. Okay. We're going to have to ask you next uh, what your favorite man cave you've built is. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go right to uh, famous architect Le Corbusier, Bob. I read it on your website that one of your, one of your architects is a huge fan of Corbusier. Do you think Corbusier? Um, a revolutionary architect of his time. I mean, he's an amazing guy. You're a fan? Huge fan. After college, I went to Europe and I went to every building I could find. All right. Me too. All right. Did you? Uh, I, just, I, just, right. I, swapped my, I swapped my background to one of our man caves. 
Oh, good. Oh, nice. good. We'll come back to that. All right. Uh, we'll come. We're, we're, we're finishing up. Scott Hobbs, flat roof. Flat roof. When they give you a flat roof, you think. Lawsuit. Uh, Kem Kem Kemper system. <laughs> I love it. Lawsuit. Flat roof. <laughs> Lawsuit. <laughs> I will say Kemper system, which is what saves flat roofs. Before that, I would have said problem or lawsuit. Problem and lawsuit. And okay, okay. And we'll get later, we'll get to the point where the architect points at the builder and the builder points at the architect. Um, and then I guess we'll end it up with, um, we'll end up with Bob. The word is zoning. Oh, God. I, I think, you know, the only time I've, I'm on a Zoom call with this many people is using it usually in a zoning presentation. So I'm trying to disassociate that horrible experience with today's awesome experience um, because it's literally the thing I hate most in all of my career. It's the worst. All right. I think that was a very good, I think we learned a lot. I mean, <laughs> that, that uh, flat roofs make you wince and zoning makes you wince. Um, but yet you've got heroes. You know, I can tease out of you that Corbusier is a hero. Um, but but really, your your heroes are fly fishermen. All right, I like this. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Roberto. I mean, do you want to? Talk I, I, I just have so so. I have a question. I you have you have a client. You know, I spent five million dollars on this plot of land, and they come to you and they say. You know, I want to build a $10 million house. Or do they say, this is what I want to build, or I need 7,500 square feet. What's it going to cost? What is the, the most common conversation? And also beyond that, if we have a house that's just for the sake of numbers, $10 million, but let's just say it could be $30 million, whatever the case, where, what are the percentage of costs? What is, what are they paying for design? Like 10% for design, 15% for design? How much in building and, and materials? How much is labor? Like, kind of break that down for me generally. Is that the, the cost is for Scott, right? And the fees are for me. Wait, However, you want to break it up. About cost, Bob. That's all Scott's problem. You just make it pretty, and then that's his problem. I don't know anything about numbers. Numbers? What is that? I don't. I'm sure your invoices are healthy. I just draw things. I don't know anything about math. Because that, that is a really important question because I have asked Scott before, well, what happens when it looks like it's going to go over budget? How much responsibility is the architects for actually knowing what his designs are going to cost? So I think that's the question that we're, we're getting at here. Yeah, but so let's start at the beginning though. How, what's the typical general approach about someone who has a big piece of, they say, look, I bought this land. I've been dying to get it. I have it. This is what I want. What do they say? What is the typical approach? They want, they want, they give you square footage. They give you, what do they say to you? I, so this is for me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. It's funny because I get, I get calls all the time from potential clients and without exception, they all say that they all bring it up. How much? And, and, and I cringe every time I was like, Oh, here it goes. That's, that's the question I've been waiting for. And usually I try to lead them into pointing to stuff on our portfolio or maybe just showing me a few examples of the kind of home they plan on building or renovating. So I have some idea as to the level of construction they intend to do. Um, I met a lovely woman this week who wants to build a glass box off the side of her 
house, all steel frame with steel frame windows. And I said, well, that's a, a 1,000 to 1,500 bucks a square foot to build that room. That's an expensive room to build. And she didn't like that answer, but if she wants to build that kind of room, that's what it's going to cost. If, if she wants to put Marvin windows in a room kind of like that, um, you know, that's it. That's a, that's a, that's a much different room. You know what I mean? Or that's a much different house. So, um, you know, we, we either win clients or lose clients by trying to do our best to, to forecast what this thing is ultimately going to cost. And, and honestly, that one of the hardest part of my job is that B word, the budget word, because if a project goes south, it's always about the budget. It's rarely about anything else. So, um, so we work pretty hard to, to keep close with people like Scott to make sure that we draw a little bit and we do a price check. We draw a little bit more, then we do a price check. And then so by the time we're actually ready to build this thing, we have a pretty good sense of what it's, what it's going to be. And there shouldn't be very yeah, many issues with, with the railroad tracks that I had across. I was saying the um, so, uh, but it's but budgets are budgets are just they're just really tough. Um, they're tough to articulate, certainly in the beginning, and it's um, and it's tough to align. You know, we're I think we're pretty honest with people um, early on, and in today's world is really tough because. And Scott will agree with me, I think, in that we don't know. Like, I think the $3 million house a year ago is now a $4 million house. And they're the same house. Um, and the $4 million is maybe $5.5 million. You know, like, there's this COVID curve that we're using. And, 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 it's, and it's frustrating for our clients because um, it's just we, we're taking it one day at a time. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to to manage that. So I'd say it, it's, um, I, I, I agree with Bob that it, it's so hard in order to try to um, show people what we're talking about and what does that really mean? And so, I mean, we, we do a square foot estimate to start some stuff out in, in, in budgeting. And with the square foot, I mean, there, there's full areas, which, you know, basements maybe three quarter or half or you have unfinished. Main floors would be regular square footage, but then, you know, let's say you have open space up above, that might be something additional. You know, you'll have some outdoor terraces or maybe some closets will be less. And, you know, it becomes kind of an art form. And then you want to apply a range up front because I mean, the, the, the number of questions that come up are unbelievable as to how many different things could be out there inside of a, um, inside of a, a project. And then by the way, you ought to toss in some site elements and so you try to go ahead and say, look, you know, what, for what you're telling me based on our historical data, your project's somewhere between like five and six million. If the person's budget's two million, it's game over. You're never going to get there. If it's four and a half, okay, now we got to really work hard and get the stuff down. If it's seven, it's like, well, Bob, you weren't trying hard. Enough. Get back there. Do some more stuff on this. Um, but when you get to like a, a final estimate, when you actually have like a real estimate, and you're talking about like a 40 page long document where you're calling out all of the items in here. I mean, full spreadsheets that get down to, you know, each and every individual part of the thing. Here's all of each of the uh, trim items. There, there's flooring parts, there's tile and marble, there's millwork stuff. And this is how you get to an end number. And, you know, again, the square footage gets you to a range, but if you want a real number, you've got to actually go through this process. 
And again, I mean, it's 40 or 50 pages of grinding, um, you know, just sort of grinding spreadsheet stuff. So that, that's what you got to get to. But and you got to start out somewhere. And, and this and, is kind of at a point like before they've chosen what kind of countertop, what kind of fixtures, what kind of, which could really vacillate that. That's when you're in the square foot estimate. And by the way, a couple of quick tips for people. When you're talking under square foot cost, it's sort of like saying, you know, what does a cubic foot of a car cost? I'm sure it's a relevant measure, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And if you think about like, if you literally, if you picture with a car, and you took the whole list of the specifications of a Mercedes-Benz versus a Hyundai, there's not a lot different between the two. If you're just reading all the technical data, if you really know what you're talking about, you can understand what the difference is. But boy, when you sit in one, you can tell the difference between the two types of cars. And that's the same thing with the, with the house. And so in the square footage, I mean, just starting out though, it's like, first off, what's a square foot? And for example, realtors, you're typically talking about heated living space. Whereas like as a builder, I'm talking about exterior paint in, and I'm going to count like the chimney mass counts, the wall thickness counts, all of that counts. When you get to, and that's primarily the first two floors, as I mentioned, those are all full spaces. Top floor and, and basement, they may be less spaces, but if you got a huge man cave or something downstairs, it may be a full space. If you have 10 square feet of porches, you know, you have to account for that. So maybe that's a quarter square foot for those, but some houses have 1500 square feet. So knowing what that, you know, what's a square foot becomes important. And then there's other things as to what's included in the square foot costs. You know, is the builder's fee in there? Is the supervision in there? Is, uh, does he take it all the way up to painting? Does he go into decorating or, or you know, decorative fixtures counted or not counted? Uh, is there a Lutron system or a Crestron system? So there's a lot of questions to get the square foot cost. And most unsophisticated buyers don't know that. So they show up to somebody and they go 300 bucks a foot. Then they show up to Bob and I and we say, well, you're probably at 500. They say, you guys are crazy expensive. Now, once they're done designing the house, they're at 500 bucks. But at that point, Bob and I are long gone. We've lost the job. It doesn't go to us. So, you know, people are obviously incentivized to go ahead and be and say the lower number. And they're not wrong in saying it. They're just choosing different facts. Can I ask, in, in Manhattan, there's a lot of vetting of people. We're 60% of our, you know, product is co-op boards. They go through your entire financial picture to know that you have the wherewithal to pay for certain things. Do you guys do any vetting? Someone who wants to build a $15 million house, a $20 million house, and you know, they, maybe they get 80% there. And it's like, uh, how do you, how do you, do you, can you do any vetting? Uh, do you want to start? Uh, we're, I mean, we take retainers. That's pretty much my only protection, I think, in that, uh, you know, we usually have a retainer to kind of hold on to until, you know, that gets credited over the course of the project. So that's, that's our protection. But I don't ask for financials. No, I think we, when we end up with having a couple of things that work in our favor. I mean, one, in general, land around here is really expensive. So somebody coming in and doing this, they've already shown that they've got wherewithal because they're they're you know they're buying they're spending some pretty serious money just in order to get the land to build on for the contractor we're a little bit protected because they're spending a lot of money with the architect so yep. it's like okay you're already you're going in deep here before you even get to us and in addition it's a relatively small community i mean you know a couple tens of thousands of people that can build this stuff 
and the six degrees of separation is typically three or some odd degrees. Generally, so generally like known entities. Exactly. Bit, so you yeah. got somebody, you know, something inside of there, and hopefully you can pull this along. And and there is a danger though, on especially on monster houses, and for a normal size house, you know, normal for this area. It, it, if something gets started and then somebody actually abandoned it, like during framing, you could probably finish it with your lien rights and get enough money out of it in order to pay yourself and make everything work. On the other hand, if you're building like a $40 million house, and by the way, that's the house only, not design, not land and other stuff, you know, you're, until you get toward the end, that's not worth anything. I mean, there, there's very few partially finished $40 million houses that anyone's going to go anywhere near. So that is a little bit more risky. But so that's one of my questions. So you're building a $40 million house. It takes almost 24 months to do that? Oh, yeah. You're, you're, okay. Yeah, yes, at least 24. Okay. How, how, do, how does the pay scale go? Like, how do, how do they, you know, how, six months they're paying you more? This, you know, how does that go? For, in general, for the contractor, we, for a good contractor, you ought to get paid for work in place plus whatever deposit money has to actually go out. So if I'm like, for example, if I'm so digging the hole, I don't get paid any money. We dig the hole, you know, no money changes hands. We send a bill. By the end of that month, they end up paying us for whatever work we did in the prior month. Now, if I'm ordering a million dollar window package, the window company is going to demand 10% before they even do shop drawings. They're going to demand another 25% at approval of shop drawings, another 25% during it. And I'm asking the client for those monies and those flow right through us. And then at delivery, when, it, when the truck shows up, you've got to get up to like 90 to 95% when the truck pulls in the driveway. So in those cases, the owner's getting the cash ready and it literally flows through us in a, in a perfect scenario. Bob, you can talk into the designer fees. Uh, I mean, 85% of our work is pre-construction. So, um, you know, if, if, and, and frankly, if we're drawing something that's you know, really big, um, our fees are, you know, they'll still, they'll still try to negotiate, but, um, but our fees are somewhat disproportionate to the actual construction costs, but it, we get paid mostly pre-construction for what it's worth. And you're talk about the designing, sorry, sorry, John, one quick, if you're designing something that big, it takes you how long? Um, I mean, are you, when you say $40 million house, Oh, don't even talk a forty million dollars. I mean, if, yeah, you know, I don't even think I've ever done a, a, a you know eight thousand square foot twenty million dollar house. I don't know. Is that even? I, I my generic answer to that, removing this COVID curve thing and removing any potential town related delays. Like if you have a waterfront house, there's three months. It takes three months just to get through that coastal application with planning and zoning. So we can you know. My generic answer is six months. If it's a coastal application, that's probably eight months to a year before we're ready to, you know, by the time we've drawn it, designed it, proved it, detailed it, Scott's bid it, and then we start digging a hole. All right, John, go. Well, so I, it's actually an excellent segue. So what does the beginning of the process look like? I, um, I meet with my realtor and I identify a beautiful waterfront piece of land in um, Greenwich. And I, then I have to go, I guess, shopping for an architect. And then the architect helps me pick a builder or 
what if I admire a builder and does the builder ever recommend architects? I mean, how does this work? Where, where does this begin? Does it begin even with picking a piece of land or do you ever actually get involved at that stage? That's a loaded, it's a, that's a great question and it's a loaded one. And I think a lot of people take different paths to get to the custom side. I mean, I'd say for realtors, if you're out with a client, I know you've all had these, you've gone and seen 50 freaking houses and none of them are right, even though it meets everything that you've been talking about with the client. Odds are that's like a custom client that, that it's just, look, you're not going to find something that somebody else built. You want to make your own. So somewhere along the way, a client realizes the fact that they want to go ahead and do this process, go through the screen. That's what's going to, that's what's needed for them to be happy in this process. And sometimes people will call up the contractor first. Sometimes we'll call up the um, architect. Sometimes they'll have land. Sometimes they have it. They're in the shopping process. And it's, it's just a different relationship depending where the people are in that process. That, that's sort of my experience. I mean, Bob, what have you seen? Yeah, I think it's similar. Everyone's kind of unique. Um, I steal quotes from Scott all the time. And one of his was, you know, having, a, having the builder, uh, the architect and the homeowner is a three-legged stool that stands on its own. So it's a really good approach to a project in most cases. Uh, the purest form, I think the simplest way of doing it, it that has changed recently, I would say, is, is we meet with them first. They, we design this thing and then we competitively bid it to multiple contractors. The project is awarded and then we go off and build with our chosen contractor. In the last four or five years, I think the environment has been shifting a little bit. And I think more people have been going to builders where builders are in a position to recommend architects which I think is a wonderful opportunity to develop more relationships like that. Uh, real estate agents are critical. Um, you guys do a great job of calling on people like Scott and I to get us in to look at, you know, look at projects that your clients might be considering. And I think we could be a good resource for you. You know, we could, we could look at a piece of property and realize that it's in a velocity flood zone pretty quick. That means, guess what? It's going to have wave action on the house. You really don't want to do that kind of project unless you unless you really want that house. Um, so you know we could we could sort of help you through those kind of things before you know you, you dive in dive in too deep on on properties like that. Yeah, I I, I think that that's a, a, an excellent segue as well. I've heard Scott say um, we're not the right builder for you if this is just a sort of a five year horizon we're probably you know, not the right path. If you're looking to build your forever house and you want it to meet all of your particular needs, um, then it makes sense. So do you also say the same thing? Listen, if you just need a house, you know, there's a more efficient path. You know, but if you want really something that's truly custom and special and designed for you, you know, it's gonna cost more and it's gonna take longer. And so, um, and you may not, and you're not doing this for resale value. I know, I, I've, right? So let's talk about that, the value of this and, and what the right client looks like and who's not the right client for this process. Scott or me? Either. Whoever's inspired. Um, well, for us, it's, it's, it's pretty, we find out pretty quickly, right? Because, you know, if you notice behind me, I have a drafting table, like, I'm drawing stuff by hand still, you know, and I'm not letting go of that. 
people are still paying me to do that. And that's my process. And I will, as long as I'm in my, I'm in business, that's what I'm going to do. So I draw a little bit, then I step away for a day or two and I come back and I develop that a little bit more. And that's my process. And it's, I'm not about speed and I'm not about getting things done quickly. And I'm not about stealing details from other projects. And I explain that to people and those people, and we get paid by the hour, by the way. So we're very transparent. Um, many architects bill differently, but we're not, we're never going to be the cheapest option for people. Um, so I think that for some that eliminates us from the competition for people that aren't ready to invest in that, that kind of, uh, experience of, of sort of custom tailoring a home, um, then I think we're just, we're, we're, we're quickly eliminated. So we, we operate from including our care division, which handles ongoing maintenance, smaller projects and, and expedited projects as we call them. You know, we do all different types of price range and, and quality level and, and stuff. I mean, our core businesses are distinguished home, you know, big project stuff. And, and what's important there is it's like, do you want a trusted partner? Do you, the more you want transparency, the better our systems are, because we've got a lot of really great systems that show this stuff. Do you want to feel safe as to the fact that, you know, you're going to be spending $10 million with me or $3 million or four, you know, $25 million or something. You're going to be spending a lot of money, no matter how you look at it. Do you want to know that this is actually protected? There's financial controls, there's contracts, there's legal language. You know, do you want to know that, that you're safe and trusted on this? Plus, I mean, we, we actually, I mean, there's some builders that, that, and I'm sure with architects too, there's some folks that customer is not really part of their business plan. For us, we're built around the customer. I mean, we really want to serve them and find the right answer for what they're trying to do. So if you want a good partner that way, and you're willing to, to follow our advice, I mean, some of our worst ones are during especially bad times, you might take on a client that doesn't want to follow your advice. And that just becomes a long slog. I mean, it's like, look, I've done this for 30 years. Inside of our company, we have a thousand years of construction experience. Would you please let us go ahead and guide you through this to get to a successful outcome? Um, so it's what sort of a process do you want? And then at the end of the day, we can help to get you to, I mean, our barest minimum quality level is very high. So you're not gonna get a bad product, but the highest level, I mean, it's really expensive, but we can get you there. But you wanna really test that and see if you really wanna go there. Cause it, it's that, you know, you almost get a doubling in price every for the, once you get up to like 95% to get the 96, I mean, you're 50% more to get the 97, you're hundred percent more than 95%. And some of those jumps are humongous. And if you don't, if, if you can't, if it doesn't matter to you, you shouldn't spend that money. If it does matter to you, well, and you have the money, then you then you can at least consider it and, and think about doing it. Susie Rosen, who I used to work with at Brotherhood and Higley, is now selling fabulous houses down in Charleston. Has a question about supply chain. Go ahead. Yes. Um, hi there. Hi, Scott. Um, no. I wanted to ask you, we're suffering um, terribly um, here because um, so many builders are falling very, very behind um, because they cannot get the supplies. And I think this is not you know, a problem that's unique to this part of the world. What kind of overages are you having to cover in your quotes right now? So, so there's all sorts of weird things where, I mean, for example, half inch plywood a year ago went for $15. 
Today right. it goes for $52. Right. I mean, it, it's you're like, it, it, you can't conceive of that number. 21 inch drawer slides for cabinets are on ration to the mill shops. On ration, what are you talking about? The pool, manu the pool equipment manufacturers, they are behind through next year. So they, I mean, they're, they're trying to ramp up production. They won't be able to deliver enough stuff. You know, they, 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 if they could double their production, they'd still be sold out for 2021. You have, um, you know, we, I didn't think Suez was going to affect us, but sure enough, we, we have some windows coming from Germany. They require oversized open containers. The oversized open containers that got stuck in Suez have now messed up my supply chain because they needed to pick up the windows and come here. So it's just, it's, you, and you, and there's other things that you just don't know. They ran out of spray foam insulation. Like what? You can't run out of spray foam. And what are you talking about? Well, the deep freeze down in Texas and LA, it shut down the chemical plants and it shut down a lot of the natural gas. And they were running, they were running tight before that. So at this point, I mean, we're trying to be very honest and transparent with the owners. And it's just like, look, I can't tell you. I mean, I, 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 my credibility is huge to me. And I've been able to guarantee stuff and make things happen. And right now, all I can tell you is we're trying to order everything we can as fast as we can, get it way before we expect our lead times to be at least double whatever they used to be. And we're still going to get stuck and stuff isn't going to work the way we want it to work. I pity That's you. the happy news. Okay. You've got worse news? <laughs> I know. I've been hearing so many complaints and people just, you know, beyond just about everything from dishwashers to faucets to everything. So I sympathize. It must be very, very difficult to do your job right now and stay happy <laughs> or say challenging. Yeah. yeah. Challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And I ask just something completely kind of off just for fun. I'm assuming you guys work with some pretty eccentric people. <laughs> so I'm just wondering like for Bob in some ways, like has any, what has, has anybody come to you and said, I want you to design this? And you, you're you resistant and almost reluctant, but you're just like, okay, we'll work that out and figure it out. <laughs> completely that you're, and then you're like, hey, you know, we did it. Wow, that was pretty cool. Or just something, anything. I'm just curious. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. Our clients are typically captains of industry, very wealthy, well-to-do, and... They're accustomed to telling people in their life what to do. They're not accustomed to people instructing them on what to do. Um, so it's really a fine line. For me, um, I do my best to sort of extract from them what they want. And then I try to put that on paper and try to engage with them so that making, you know, making sure their thoughts and ideas and concepts are, are, are represented in the design but oftentimes they, they sort of pull it back and steer it in a totally different direction. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not a complete coward, I'm a semi-coward in that I, I will defend my design if I think it's the right thing. But ultimately if the client says, no, this is what I want to do, um, then I'll draw what they wanna do. I just won't put my name on it at the end of the day. Um, and that does, that does happen. Um, but in most cases we're able to sort of you know, hash it out and, and, and clients make, you know, good educated decisions, but it, it's, it's tough. These, these, these individuals are wonderful to have in their, in your life in most cases, but they can be difficult. Scott, any anecdotes? Well, I mean, we had one thing, I mean, we, we try to, we work on understanding and problem solving. 
And so what does the client really want? And how do you solve the problem? And so this one client wanted this, this, we were going over a very ornate metal railing thing. And there was three prices. One price was double the other, other two. And so as we came in and we said, look, you know, here's what this is. Here's that these guys are at this price. And I mean, it's really spectacular, but really it's, it's kind of ridiculous what we're talking about. Here's the other two. And the owner sits there and goes, well, again, what was that about the other one again? And you go, well, I mean, look, the guys, they do something special. It really does have the metal work and, and, and there's hand tool things and it's, it's more artistry stuff, but the difference, I don't think it justifies to this. And over, so over here are the other two. And they go, well, what about, and I'm like, oh crap, she wants to buy this one. And, and this is where you sit there and you take a look inside. I mean, look, I get paid on a percentage, but at the same time, I'm really trying to look out for my client's best interest. So after I brought them the alternatives, and I've done my due diligence, the reality is if they want to spend more money to do something that it's legitimately better, I mean, it, it's, it's legitimately better, just you know, inside the value equation, for me, it doesn't match, but for them, it does. My job is not to be a prick and you know, tear apart their dreams. I don't want them to, to go ahead and finally get the railing in. And then you know, a year later, they're going, oh, I just feel so guilty because Scott made me feel bad about this. I want them to be happy in their house. And so it's like, how do you go ahead and, I, I use an analogy just facetiously that if somebody wants a solid gold toilet seat, I'm going to present a bunch of different options. And if they keep coming back to the solid gold toilet seat, I'm going to find them the best solid gold toilet seat at the most efficient price. And I'm going to buy them a solid gold toilet seat. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense to me. And I've done my job giving them alternatives. But you subconsciously provided one of the greatest sales techniques. techniques. You kind of took it away from them. The strip said, line. No, 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 no! I want that <laughs> strip line. And and again, it's you're you're you you you're. It's like I'm not selling. Please, I'm not selling. I really am not. Um, but again, at the end of the day, the client it, it's our clients get to choose what makes them happy. And our job is to again, we're we're help to guide them, help to move them along. We won't let them do something bad. I mean, there's certain stuff you're like, no, you're talking about there. That's not going to work. You're, that's a disaster. But when it comes, I mean, we've painted like. Like like whole series of rooms black on the interior, and you're like, that's just not a good idea. <laughs> they loved it. And you're like, I'm so happy you're happy. I mean, I just, it, it just you know, it's not our house. We don't have to live there, and we advised against it, but that's where they wanted to go, and then we let them do it and enjoy it. So I want to now ask forward looking trends and what what's coming next. I remember. Every, every six months, I ask uh, Scott, uh, how's the business? Because I think it's a real bellwether for all of us, you know, real estate agents, you know, are the, are people still spending with Bob and Scott on custom designs? And I remember after the 09 downturn, when I asked Scott and I said, wow, you know, the, the economy is in, is, is in a free fall and it's really bad and the stock market has just crashed. Your, your business must be terrible, Scott. And he said, you know, I found that there was a pullback for, for a little while that if you're worth $500 million and suddenly you're worth $400 million, you know, or $300 million, you feel bad and maybe you take a pause on that project, but then you wake up one day and you say, you know what? I'm still worth $300 million and I have to live somewhere. So I'm going to go forward and I'm going to build that house. So I'll never forget that story that, 
you know what, that somehow your, your customers continue to march on and build these fabulous works of art. Right. How's the market now? And what do you see for the next five or 10 years? Because some of these projects require a five-year commitment. Are you busy? Go for it, Bob. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I this summer it'll be 22 years I, since I opened the practice. And honestly, I, I feel like I got, I worked for a couple other local firms before opening my practice. And I was there for two in particular that where they turned 10 years old. And that seemed to be a point in time where they were like, I can pick and choose my own clients. I can be very selective. I could, you know, it just 10 years was the number. So for me, 10 years was 2009. So you, you now know what happened to me. I got screwed. So, you know, I'm not mad about it, but it did take 22 years to kind of figure, you know, in a pandemic to, to kind of set it straight. Um, but right now it's, it's crazy. The biggest issue for me is to not, not overwhelm myself and my staff. I have no interest in growing the firm into twice its size. I have no interest in stressing out the staff I have because they're incredible. Um, and I just, I don't want my life to get more complicated than it is. So it's a wonderful place to be, but I'm going to be a little bit more selective now. And I am going to take my time. And I have a half a dozen people on a wait list that I'm not going to be able to get to for six, eight months or a year. And it's an amazing thing. It's amazing. Like I, I wake up every morning. I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening. And then I start crying because I don't think I can do this. You know, I, it's that's just because I'm uh, I, I, insecure. But no, it's a, it's a great time. It's a great, great time. And, and I'd say it's like, look, during from 2000, late 2008 through last year, I mean, a reason that we were successful is because it was blocking and tackling. Every phone call got returned within an hour, you followed up on every single lead. You actively went after stuff. You were the absolute best partner that somebody could possibly be. And even with that, you know, the sales funnel might be you go on 10 sales calls, you get seven people that, that want to follow up, you get five that are really interested, three say yes, and two of them actually go ahead with the project. Now, it's like you go on 10 calls, nine are really interested, eight say yes, and seven start. And you're like, uh-oh, this is a problem. And inevitably, I mean, with a lot of the, especially under like our care side, there, there's been a lot of like $10 million properties that have changed hands in Greenwich. And you get a call to come over and help, you know, look around and help fix up, you know, what do we need to do to fix this up and change this and do that? You know, somewhere between a half a million and $2 million worth of work. And it's like, and we'd really like to have this done by summer. And you're like, um, we might be able to start by summer, maybe. And I can't guarantee when we'll be done because the, just with our resources, which are vast, we're going to be tapped out. Never mind that every other Tom, Dick and Harry is having the same thing. So it's a huge competition for resources. And unfortunately, especially with most builders, most are in, there's been times of famine before. And so everyone has a tendency to have their eyes too, you know, that eyes that are much bigger than their stomachs. And vendors in particular have a tendency to say yes, way too often. And so just, you know, that they're going to get themselves in trouble. They won't be able to meet their commitments. You have to plan for that. You have to have backups. You have to really stretch. Um, so it, I, I predict very good things for at least a three-year time frame. After three years, you know who knows, and who knows, inflation will kick in, and the five billion-dollar house will be worth five billion. So it doesn't matter anyway. You really ought to go for it. 
Um, but things will be very good for a while. But you raise an interesting point where um, you bid on seven jobs and seven of them say yes. And I guess that's a function of the stock market being terrific and money being cheap and earnings being good that seven of these uh, projects want to go forward. And you said, that's a problem. And although Bob said he doesn't want to double the size of his firm, um, may maybe you do. Is it even possible now? I mean, you can, you can grow if you want to. We're, we're, I mean, we're the size we want to be in this market. We have room to grow in Jersey and New, and in uh, New York City. How big are you? How, how big are you now? So we got about a dozen project capability in the, in the Fairchester, Litchfield, uh, Dutchess, Green um, counties. We've got six project capacity out in the Hamptons, got about five project capacity in New York City, and about a four major project capacity in New Jersey. So all, all in, you could do 30 projects at, at a time. I try not to add it up because I do want to sleep. So luckily, we have very good local teams and local guys in each of those markets, and that's what allows us to function well together. But we do watch capacity a lot. And it's um, and again, it, it would be scary to try to grow right now because ultimately you're going to be beholden to the subcontractor base and whatever you got out of them before, you're not going to get out of them again. So you've it's been doing it's, this 30 years and you do 30 projects at a time. And you told me this past Sunday, I have no idea how to price things anymore after 30 years in the business. That made me pause on Sunday and think, if you don't know, what about the guys who are not as experienced as you? That should have been the first question of the hour, right there. Well, I mean, Bob, as Bob brings up, I mean, it's like a lot of guys who have been in business right now, there, there's a decent number that have only been in business for 10 years. They've never known good times. They have, they've never gone through the early aughts, you know, through the, the boom times of that. They never hit the mid nineties. They haven't seen the cycles. And even guys that have been like in it for 20 years, they didn't net, they were growing their business during the boom times. And then they hit the bad times and now you hit boom times again. So there's a lot of guys that they did, you know, the old gray hairs as they start coming in, it's like, until you've been through a couple of these, you don't recognize what's going on and you probably don't react fast enough. Well, on that note, you know, you're saying that you can't price things. Look at the appraisers. I mean, they're having a terrible time. Yeah. They're making it up according to them. Yeah. You know. And as realtors too. Right, right. We've it's been up. known to be wrong. <laughs> oh, well, nobody, you don't know the answer. You don't know. How no. far do you push it? And How much should I bid? I'm in a bidding war. How much should I bid? I have no idea. You want it. <laughs> and I mean, you guys are pricing long-term assets just to, and like for, for us, I mean, if I'm trying to buy painting, it's 16 months away from buying from the painter. I don't know who's in business. I know. I don't know what the pricing is. I don't know what the volume is. And for you guys, as you're trying to price a house these days, you know, two months makes a difference in the pricing. I mean, a week. <laughs> a week does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I was what I hear you saying, tell me if I'm wrong, but um, when, when times are easy, um, I, I, I'm, I'm less likely to make a mistake because any number, any of these five designers can do it. Any one of these uh, builders can do it. But what you're saying now is that 
um, there's, there's some potential risk out in front between supply chain, labor, um, and, and, and people frankly being overextended. And so it's perhaps more important than ever, not only to pick an experienced architect and an experienced builder, maybe who have experience with each other and can be successful with that, say three-legged stool and, and guide me through a three-year process and, and a $10 million expenditure, because there's big risks that, uh, that if I get it wrong, it could be a very expensive mistake. Especially with guys that, well, I mean, for, for builders, or sorry, for owners, buyers, you have to be very careful on what you're being told. And you don't want to listen to just what you want to hear because that, that'll get into trouble. And some of the model of like, if you're pushing a contractor to take a fixed price number in a competitive bid situation, you're asking for a potential disaster because halfway through, he may not be able to live up to it. And then what do you do? And how do you unwind that? And what happens? Does he cheat and, and take stuff out of the house and build a lower quality than what you wanted? Does he go broke during it? Do you get a whole bunch of liens from vendors because he can't afford to pay at that price? Is the job slowed down because, you know, instead of getting the good subs, you had to get, you know, Bob and his cousin, um, Johnny, who's on parole, who comes over and have never really done tile, but they'll do it for cheap. And is that what you end up getting? Because that's what he has to do. And that becomes scary. Are you more expensive than the, than the guy who builds $2 million houses? You're capable of building $10 million, $20 million houses. Are you more expensive? Because I've accused you of being expensive before and you get mad. So are you? Apples to apples quality wise, we're the same price. We do have more supervision. We think that supervision is very valuable. So we do include that. But an apples to apples against reputable guys that actually carry real insurance, not, not the guy that has in his truck, you know, fully insured, because God only knows what that means. And it's like, is it even fully insured in that industry? Right. I mean, so, it, and is he actually have employees or is he all 1099 on guys? So again, against reputable guys, we'll frequently win competitive bids. Again, you put me up against a guy in a pickup truck who has no staff and it's going to take twice as long to build the thing. He can tell you a lower number and you have to decide whether or not that lower number is actually a value to you or, or getting the house is a value. But isn't it a byproduct of the fact that you have such a comprehensive business that's so packed that the likelihood that you're going to make a mistake is so narrow? compared to someone who doesn't have that. Yeah, yeah I mean, because you, you are correct. If you don't have the right infrastructure behind the scenes working on the jobs, then you don't have enough brains. And without the brains making your project work, things get forgotten, they get overlooked, they get missed. It, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not gonna go the right way. You don't have somebody calling the plumber every single day. This is the guy you've worked with for 20 years. I've still got to call him every day. And there's gotta be somebody doing that. And so if you go ahead and if you, you stretch the general contractor, he's not calling him every day. He's calling him once a week. Yeah. So you get the plumber once a week. And, and it just, it doesn't, the things start to fall apart. And now a segue back to Bob. I've also talked to you where you say, I say, how's it going? And you say, I'm not getting what I need from the architect. And I say, well, so what? Right. I mean, what's the difference? And you say, no, it, it, it matters. I think one time you told me that that they gave you drawings where where they were off actually by several inches from one end of the building to the other end of the building, several inches off. 
across the span of the front of the building. So can you talk to me about why, why, why the architect matters? Am I, am I defending myself or Scott, are you gonna take the podium on this one? That wasn't me, by the way, I hope. That wasn't me, right? I hope. You, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the architect, if the architect's plans are well-coordinated and put together, then the contractor gets to move so much faster and there's less mistakes. And, and that's why, again, a guy with skill behind the, 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 um, on the drafting table makes a monstrous difference in the speed and the quality of the job. And there's some things you can't come back from. And in contemporary, and Bob, you'll probably back this up, you know, in some of traditional stuff, you have so much stuff going on that if something's off by half an inch here or there, you'll figure out a way to make it up. In a lot of the contemporary, there is zero room for error any place, or you might as well rip out everything you've done. I mean, it's literally a half inch error can cause a hundred thousand bucks worth of rework. And you, you don't want to be figuring that stuff out on the fly. You've got to have somebody smart who's doing the pre-work. And, and in general, it's great if you have a builder and an architect together so they can bounce these things back and forth. So the architect only has to draw it once. Because when the poor architect, when you sit there and go like, hey, Bob, would you go back and change each window by half an inch? And that's like two weeks worth of drafting time. I mean, it seems so easy, but it, it's huge amounts of time for the architect that's just wasted money. It's just wasted money. It didn't have to be that way. So it, it's building that team helps to save everybody and move it along more efficiently. What he said, right, Bob? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not, listen, no one's perfect. We all make mistakes and renovations are very different from new houses, frankly. I'm guessing your example, John, is probably a renovation, I'm guessing. Um, because if you, if you send two people in to measure a house, and document that existing house, you're gonna get two different sets of drawings back without fail. There's just no way to do it any other way. So there's always, renovations are tough, but for new houses, there's, I don't know, there, unless you like Scott is, I know Scott happens to be working on one in particular that's not hundreds, it's millions of dollars in repair um, that can be troublesome. You can get in trouble facts, uh, but, but generally speaking, a new house is, pretty predictable, not that difficult to manage or draw or detail. Um, you just need that time to do it right. Um, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Maybe if you've run your own firm for 22 years and been doing this long, but if you're doing your first barrel vault, right? I, I, guess, I guess maybe it's not so easy for those guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, listen, it's, it, you have to be you have to be smart about it. There's things you could do. There's plenty of architects out there that overdraw houses, and there's plenty of architects that underdraw houses. And I like to think we're right in that sweet spot. So that's the right place to be. Sweet spot. That is a nice way to end the show. Thank you guys for coming. This was a, a really good deep dive into what it means to be a super house designer and builder. Um, what makes these, you know, houses smarter and complicated and, uh, you know, and, and what is the process of building them and what are the risks and pitfalls? I, I learned a lot. Thank you guys. I did too. Thank you, Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. Us up. Yes. Thank okay. you. See everybody we'll next week. Thursday. Thank you, everybody. Scott, we'll see you. Yeah, Thanks we'll so. see you, Scott, next week. Bye-bye. John, see okay. you.